Hi, this is the Social Jello with Angelo show. My name's Angelo. I'm a social scientist, surfer, martial artist, and a whole lot of other things. Coming to you live from Kasai City, Japan, the Social Jello with Angelo show. All right, so what's up, everyone? How's it going? This is part two. Of the Social Jello with Angelo podcast on Zen and Western philosophy. If you tuned in to part one already,、uh, if you know the format of my show, I normally do one episode a month.、Uh, this episode,、uh, this month, you're in for a little bit of a special treat because it was a long conversation, so I, to- I tore it apart into two parts. This is part two. Um, so, you can jump in and listen to the finish off the conversation with,、uh, with me and Dale on,、uh, on Western philosophy. And he also talks a little bit about、uh, his own life living in the, Alabama,、uh, Dale Bertram, and,、um, and also how he applies his Western philosophy using things like Socrates and Plato and Plutarch. Um, how he applies this to his own life and the similarities and differences between this and also、uh, how, you know, and Zen Buddhism.、Um, and I go into some more detail on that. So I really hope you enjoy this episode.、Um, if you are one of those people that don't care about continuity or what's going on and you just want to jump into part two, great. But I do recommend you check out part one so you can kind of figure out where this conversation came from. <laughs> and.、Um, Again, you can, check us out. you can check out my podcast on TuneIn Radio. And you can also check out my podcast on LastFM. And you can also check out my podcast on Blueberry. Well, without further ado, let's continue this show on the road. So, I guess after kind of talking to you about how I apply Zen Buddhism and In my life, I'm really curious as to if how Neo Platonism, I'm going to keep mixing this up, but how, how are your philosophies?、Um, how do you apply your philosophies in your life? Is it similar to, to, what I, to what I just mentioned, mindfulness and that kind of thing? Or how does that work for you? Well, in,、um, in regards to some things where I think. A Buddhist and a Platonist would have、uh, you know, similar concepts, but、uh, you know, the Platonist would have a different term for it, which a Buddhist would not use. For example, you'd have imagination versus intellection. You know, imagination being these、uh, thoughts that come to your mind that you know, give you some type of disturbance, like, for example, anxiety or depression. Can be triggered by you know, this thought that, for example, there is no hope for、uh, me in this one endeavor, or you know,、uh, things have to go this way, and if it doesn't, you know, I'll be very upset, or whatever. And that said, for how it has applied to my life, really is on a multiple, very deep level that、uh, there are actually some things that I disagree with Plato on.、Uh, Just like I think you'd probably disagree with、uh, Bodhidharma on.、Uh, and really, Buddhism to me is more like a. Like, just like how Zen Buddhism is to you, it's more a you know, philosophy than it is 
particularly a religion, and it's a way of spirituality as well. And see, like what a lot of times uh, people do is they go to uh, different uh, churches or temples or whatever. They hear that some guy telling them what to believe, and then if they think differently, that guy would um, pretty much get everyone against them. That actually happened to me. Um, when I was actually a teenager living in Alabama, which is probably the worst area when it comes to uh, your religious fundamentalism, and uh, pretty much from there, actually learned how to question things very well. So I already had the mindset uh, that would become more of a Platonic type deal because you have the Socratic method and. Uh, Yet more on a personal level, that uh, using Platonism, you have a lot of things that would be similar to how Stoic or Buddhist might actually like. For example, if I'm dealing with uh, things without Platonism, that uh, you might give away my time a lot more freely, and you know, I might. You not think about things while you know being a Platonist. I will uh, consistently examine my life, and you know I will not allow myself to have these unexamined actions, such as, for example, getting on my cell phone and paying no attention to the world around me. You know, living in the present, a very short thing, uh, because you know, people actually. A lot of times they say they live, but they actually exist because you know, they're really doing nothing. Like in a small town, for example, like I know you live in Japan, there's a lot of very cool stuff to do in Japan. But you know, in America, like small town America, a lot of times people would complain about uh, you know there's no bars and there's not enough bars in town, or there's no musical events or whatever. But then you'd have a Neoplatonist who would. Uh, not only find a way to improve their lives, but you know, that's the focus is that you are developing the condition from getting away from hubris, uh, I believe that's how you pronounce it, to what's called Safrosin, which is very similar to the Buddhist concept of right action, except for Safrosin means uh, wise action. It's pretty much the state of uh, mind and being where you're able to more easily live a more virtuous life and examine life, uh, both within your emotional state and your rational state. Uh, and there's a lot that can be said where you can compare it to not only reaching a state of uh, for uh, religion of the deification, but you know it's not really deification because you're not really becoming a god; you're becoming a more perfect human being, you're actually reaching a state of near perfection when you get to this state called suffering. And uh, how all this stuff has actually helped me out with dealing with uh, you know, my autism and stuff is that you would have a lot of friends who come and go, but then I realized what am I doing wrong? I keep questioning myself, what am I doing wrong? And if I don't, on the other hand, if I keep questioning what am I doing wrong, 
you might get this idea of hopelessness. But from this idea of hopelessness, I can question the idea of hopelessness saying, uh, is it really hopeless? And uh, from there, I'm thinking my way into a more rational mindset, or, or rather a non-dogmatic you know, mindset, because a lot of times, you know, people, you know, they think they're using their minds, but they're actually using their imagination. And, you know, this imagination is really one of the biggest uh, killers when it comes to people's abilities to try to become enlightened or live an enlightened life. Although at the same time, I think Platonicism has really, or Neoplatonism has really uh, set me at odds somewhat with some people who would be, uh, you know, kind of new agey because, you know, they're very, a lot of them seem like they're very much against uh, people having contrary opinions. In fact, there, there was actually this time where and people actually you know, condemned me for saying, you know, if you think you're enlightened, you're not really enlightened. Because, you know, it's a process of, you know, you're re-examining and re-evaluating things and trying to, to have a more clear view of the world. So, you know, even if you are enlightened, you don't know you're enlightened. So, you know, it's just that you're trying your hardest to you know, live like an enlightened person, at least. Does that make sense? No, that, that makes perfect sense. That's actually, that's actually what, um, what I was trying to get at earlier as far as this idea that it's not, it's, it, it's more of a, of a goal. It, it's not, it's not a means to an end, I guess. A lot of people try to get stuck on the idea. And I, I, you mentioned a lot of a lot of great points about how um, how there there can be kind of like these new age movements, if you will, uh, where people get together in groups and start quantifying, qualifying what they feel is enlightenment. Again. If you have people who are guides, like Zen masters and stuff, um, they can really help people who are completely lost and don't understand any of these things. Not to say that I'm not completely lost, because I always feel like I'm completely lost and just trying to find my way through it. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to kind of get to is, I don't, you mentioned hubris, right? Earlier? Yes. And hubris came up a lot in my studies. You know, as you know, like if you if you are studying uh, psychology, um, a lot of the modern fields and thoughts and schools, from Freud to Adler to uh, humanism, Carl Rogers, uh, the list goes on. Mead. A lot of these people were inspired by by Greek philosophers like Plato, Plutarch, Socrates. In fact, a lot of the foundings, uh, the, a lot of the foundation of psychology is based not in Eastern philosophy, but in Western philosophy from Greece, as is as is most of academia. Um, so this whole idea of trying to bring in uh, mindfulness is kind of doing like a full circle for them. But yeah, hubris, the, the idea of not letting your own ego, and I'm going to get into some Freud here. Some people hate him, but he made some really good poems. Um, this whole idea of fighting your own inner ego or your 
I know people say ego, and I'm saying ego so that anyone listening can immediately understand that I'm talking about arrogance. But in a, and really, if I'm going to be kind of specific here, our selfish desires, Freud called these the id, I-D, id. And id was all about hubris. That's that's hubris in, in from, from the Greek philosophy, the idea of yourself trying to trying to kind of keep your own inner desires from bubbling up and taking over what you're going to do, your, your own selfishness, your own selfish desires, the idea, uh, your own arrogance, trying to keep your arrogance in check. And this, this is something that in martial arts comes up really quick. Because me personally, I never like to be too arrogant before a fight because I never know when I'm fighting, I, I do cage fighting, and I never know when I'm going to lose. I'm not a perfect fighter. And even those people that you see on TV, the UFC fighters, those champions those champions that you see that have never been defeated, even they've been defeated. No one stays undefeated forever. And the reason that you see these people on winning streaks, there's a lot of stuff behind it. Um, Matchups, politics, um... Another thing that happens is when you see a champion fighting in the UFC, when you see a, a martial artist become a champion, you only, you're seeing them at their peak, at their top, at their best, and they're delivering their best, which is what got them into the UFC in the first place. What you don't see are the millions of times they lost in the dojo or at, in camp. You, what you don't see are all the injuries they sustained trying to become and trying to get to that peak, that top. And then once they get to the top, sooner or later, then they get targeted by the world's best assassins just waiting to take them down. And not physically like kill you assassins, seriously, but like the idea that once they get to the top part of the UFC, now every single other person in their division is looking for ways to take them down. And that's why no one stays undefeated forever. That's why they always end up getting sooner or later beaten. And even the ones that may have a perfect record that retire before that, this doesn't mean that when they went to their camp in sparring, there isn't someone who beats them every time. In fact, that might be that person beating them every time is what makes them dr drive them to try that much better. And that person might be bigger than them, smarter than them, stronger than them. Maybe it's someone that they would never fight in, the, in their competition because they come from a different weight class. But still, no one is undefeated. And in martial arts, your hubris gets checked every time you step in, every time you bow and you say, Oos. every time you go in and you start fighting, you are about to be checked. If you're arrogant, if you think you're the best, you, you get caught up in ideas of yourself. Sooner or later, you're always going to bump into that one person that humbles you. So to me, I think it's really important like, to keep that in check, even in in, in life, like you said, trying to make sure that I, I don't consider myself an enlightened person. Um, you know, I won't go as far as saying that I consider myself a fool because I don't have self-confidence issues, but I do make mistakes. And at the same time, I've found something that works for me, but I don't ever advocate that it's going to work for everyone. And that's something that that still to this day keeps me out of a of a established 
Zen Buddhist temple. They have Zen Buddhist temples out here where you can study under a Zen master. Another thing that I want to address that you mentioned was the idea that you live in a small town and people complain that there's nothing to do and that there's uh, there, there's not enough bars or not enough musical events. And one thing I probably want to clear up, and I've said this before on my show, is even though I do live in Japan and there's a lot of cool things to do, I actually don't live in the city. I live in a small town in the countryside. Um, I'm surrounded by rice fields and that's it. They're closest bar would be maybe 30 minutes away and I can't really go there because it would include driving and they have a zero tolerance law so it's not like I can drink and drive and I hate bothering my wife to drive me somewhere and pick me up later so like I and even that bar is not that interesting there's one bar bar like type of bar bar setting in 30 minutes away and then the rest of places are mostly just restaurants that serve alcohol so like there's not a lot of um where i live um it's 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 very similar to what, what would be like the american countryside minus ideology but as far as like the landscape yeah we're, we're really in a very similar in a very similar environment it, you know minus the people in the culture. <laughs> so I guess my, um, we're almost coming to an end here, but what would you say has helped you the most in your readings or in your philosophies? Uh, what's helped you the most? What 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 type of uh, what 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 which one of the techniques do you think helped you the most? Like for me, it's mindfulness. One of the techniques that helped me the most from Zen philosophy is is mindfulness. Being trying to be present in the moment with the people around me when I spend time with them, or being present in the moment in whatever I'm doing, focused, focusing on what's happening around me. Um. That's like the number one technique that I can think of that's helped me the most through some of the roughest times. How about you? What's what's the technique? For me, for, for me it'd be more like self, uh, you know, examination. Like Socrates said, uh, that the unexamined life is not worth living because you know a lot of times you know, you think you're you know doing right, so you're doing uh, just fine right here, but in reality. You know, everything comes back to bite you in the butt, so to speak. And um, you know, a lot of times we might think that you know, were uh, happy with this one situation. Like, for example, if you you have this uh, job that you, know, you kind of like, kind of don't, because of certain things, and um, you know, your thoughts and your emotions might be different per se like you would you know on your conscious mind you'd think that the uh, job is actually a pretty good thing but at the same time when you look within you, your energy is all sapped and uh, you might be uptight about something or it might be the opposite that you don't have a, a job of some sort and you know you're getting very 
you know, lazy, but you don't always see this because, you know, there might be something that's holding you back from within. And so what happens is that, you know, you get down this bad spiral and it becomes, uh, you know, uh, a hopelessness or uh, a life which is not productive or doing anything that causes itself happy or happiness, which a lot of times when you cause yourself happiness, it's by you know, causing other people happiness because, you know, we all, all of us want friends and, you know, connection with other people in order to do that. A lot of times we have to step outside the bounds of selfishness, which is where you get to the destruction of the uh, ego and towards the self-esteem or, you know, the wise action. And so, yeah, the, pretty much it's just the idea of self-examination through logic after looking at the principles, which uh, you can conceive by not only reading, but through di like a dialogue, like for example, what we're doing, um, and you, know, you pretty much internalize it, and you know that's pretty much helped me to be to live a more virtuous life and a happier life, and you know as opposed to like like let's say a uh, religious nut who might be like. Saying that they're living all virtuous and they're all high and mighty, but they're actually oppressing you know, everyone else, and so you know, no one really likes them. <laughs> or like those uh, you know, uh, new age guys who are like, I am enlightened. Oh, look at me, I'm so enlightened that uh, you know, uh, I'm more awake than you, and I can help you get awake by telling you that I am much better than you. <laughs> yeah that's um yeah i think that's i think that's where that's where the i don't know yeah i haven't experienced zen buddhism in japan i haven't talked to uh any zen masters out here but when i would talk to some of the americans when I was back in the U.S. that were trying to find enlightenment and they, they seemed to be trying to apply Buddhist philosophy to their life, I did get this sense of a competition, which is what turned me off to it. But interestingly enough, when I talked to, when I would talk to Zen Buddhists that were Vietnamese or even practicing Buddhists that were Japanese, and I would always tell them, I can't be a Buddhist, like it just... It's not possible for me. I don't, I've already talked to, I, I'm not a new age person. I'm not, just not, not me. I, I don't say things like the universe. I do believe that there is connections and there's things and there's things that are beyond measurement. But as a scientist, I've really grown very comfortable with the idea that I want to measure and I want to see, and I want to see results, and I want to see replication, and I want to see reliability and validity. These are things that I really value in life. So it was really hard for me to, to wrap my head around something that can be immeasurable. But I do like to philosophize about it, and it doesn't exactly mean that I knock it. And I think that's where I kind of had a hard time. That's where I had a hard time when I would talk to, to the new age people in the U.S. That's, I, I got the same vibe. Like you said, they're more, they would give off this kind of, I'm more enlightened than you and 
you need to. Even though they weren't as preachy as the, like you said, the religious nuts that claim to live a virtuous life, but then are a complete mess um, inside, like you said, un unconsciously oppressing other people, or, um, or even just in their own personal lives. I've met many people that were religious nuts, that were Christians, that were so virtuous, but at the same time, they just became very good at hiding the really bad things they were doing, like child abuse and uh, cheating on their spouses and all kinds of other bad things that they were doing that were, you know, they were just really good at hiding. Not to say the same doesn't ha happen in other circles, but yeah. Yeah, sorry, you were saying? challenge when you're dealing with someone who who views the world 
through dogma. It can be really difficult to to talk to them because their entire worldview is based on um, on dichotomous thinking, which is challenging if you don't follow it. I think a lot of my friends. I have a lot of friends who I've had friends. I have friends from all walks of life, and some of my best friends are really, really, really conservative Christians. And it's almost like when I'm talking to them, they forget that I'm not a conservative Christian. <laughs> I don't understand where this ha how this happens because I don't. I'm always telling them, you know. I'm always telling them. Actually, maybe that's what that's the thing. I'm, I'm not telling them anything. I just ask them questions and ha let them talk. And so these things come up in conversations because they see the world as this giant cause and effect machine that's controlled by some almighty power. And I'm not I'm not an atheist, and I do believe that there's a higher power out there whether you want to whatever label you want to label this energy. I I'm not arguing with anyone about that. But I do find it interesting that they have a really hard time wrapping their head around events that don't fit their paradigm. Um, I recently had a friend who uh, went through a really horrible experience, and um, he had some. He's he's been having some really big issues with his with his family, and his sons in particular, um, drug use and jail time and all kinds of stuff, legal issues. And my friend, my friend's a really great person. And he, he's not a bad, like, as far as, you know, I've known him all my life. And he didn't, he's never had a criminal record. He's never broken the law. So, his, but his sons were just really out of control. Um, and, you know, he's tried his hardest to support them and help them through these hard times. But I have another friend who knows about this situation and he constantly likes to evaluate we'll, 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 to make things easier to know who we're talking about. We'll say person A, person B. Person B is the person with the sons and person A is the person with the religious outlook on life. And person A knows person B and is constantly saying about how it's because they lived an unvirtuous life. And they and they bring up a bunch of aspects about person B's life and and how how they had uh, how they had social gatherings and maybe they had too many social gatherings and that's what made its kids and they're trying to they're really trying to figure out what person B did to make his kids turn out the way they did and he's always trying to find a reason oh that's because cause and effect because because you know if you do something bad if you do something bad then something bad's going to happen and this is the this is the thing even in zen buddhism they have karma and dharma meaning that in some situations yeah there is cause and effect sometimes many times if you do something bad for example if you raise your child and you smoke cigarettes around your kid you can't be angry at your kid later if your kid's smoking cigarettes. That's the example you set. 
but sometimes there's this thing called dharma and dharma is really hard to get your head around because these are the bad experiences that are going to happen that have nothing to do with karma now in buddhism they would go into a longer explanation and something i personally i'm not sure if i i don't like to think about things that i can't i can't tangibly touch or see or smell but they would say it has to do with things that the person may have done in their past life. Now, I, I don't believe it. I don't know. I don't know if I don't I can't say I believe in it because I've never experienced it. So I can't say that it exists or it doesn't exist. I'm very agnostic as far as that's concerned. But the philosophy behind it I do adhere to. And um and that's the idea that sometimes in life, plain and simple shit happens. And it has nothing to do with some bad thing you did in your life. Sometimes bad things just happen. And there's no, there's nothing that the person did to deserve it. So a person B's kids being in the horrible situation they're in is just one of those circumstances where sometimes bad things just happen. Yeah, he may have made, he may have made, maybe person B made some sort of, made a few mistakes, but everybody makes mistakes. If you, if you're, if you're raising kids, mistakes are going to happen. No one's a perfect parent. But what's even more interesting to me is when you see, statistically, you see really bad parents raising their kid and their kid comes out fine. And when I say bad parents, I mean parents who are drug addicts and suddenly their kid, you know, decides that they don't ever want to touch alcohol or drugs at all because they saw how bad their parents' lives were and they don't want their lives to be like that. And then you have some people who have the perfect textbook family, um, no abuse, they tried their best, and their kids just turn out to be horrible people. I mean, that's not person B's problem. Person B is in a different circumstance. But in general, there's that there's, there's those situations where where you have these these kids, these children that are brought up in good environments, but they just turn out to be bad, or they end up doing a lot of making really big mistakes and hurting people. I mean, when you look at psychopathology, that's not exactly something that's taught. That's a there's a genetic component to that. Um, and when I say genetic, I don't mean passed on by the parents. I mean it's a dormant gene. Just all of a sudden, they they come across something in their environment that expresses that gene, and next thing you know, they're psychopath. They become they become they go down the road of a psychopathologist or like the, of a narcissist. And that's not something that's exactly taught always. And I think that's where person A has a hard time with because they're under the idea that, that if you're good, good things will happen. God, God will, God is going to help you if you do good things. And God is going to disown you if you do bad things. And when bad things happen to you, it's because of God's will. And maybe you don't understand God's will now, but you will eventually. And the problem I have with that philosophy is sometimes bad things just happen. And, and there is no greater plan. That I, I don't understand when I was I was watching uh I was watching this special on Cambodia and I was watching about how this um this regime took over and they started just massacring people and I just can't help. And they're massacring, they're talking about how they were massacring babies. And I just couldn't, 
wrap my head around the idea of what the greater plan is here. There, there was no greater plan. I just couldn't, I can't. And you look at the history and how things turned out in that country and the things that happened later, and a greater plan seems to be very vague when you start talking about massacres and genocide and, and children being killed. Um, so that's, that's where, that's where at that point I have a hard time relating. I don't argue with them, but I have a hard time relating when they're trying to theorize when bad things happen, how it can fit into their scheme of, of a greater plan. I, I, I that's, that's where I kind of, I, I bite my lip and don't say anything, but that's, that's, I think that's the biggest problem with when someone comes at life with a dogmatic view is when there's any irregularities, any phenomenon, anything they can't explain, they tend to just kind of chalk it up to maybe the person deserved it. And that to me is victim blaming and that that's fucked up. Personally, I've always been played as, um, very much like a, uh, a will, a, a fortune, if you will, where you know, you do have the control. Like you could, for example, when you're um, you know, tossing the will, it might uh, spin, and you can control how much force you have in the spin, but you can't really control you know, where the will necessarily lands on, or you know, the little mark on the will. Like you could have, for example, the ability of winning the lottery one day, but then the next day you might have some thief come by and steal all your your money that you just earned, or you know you might have a very successful business, but then a very bad natural disaster hits and wipes everything else. And you know I do understand like a lot of people try to cope with bad uh, things in their lives with this or that way, so I. Like you, I don't really uh, try to argue with them when they say that, uh, you know, it's God's will or whatever. Because, you know, I kind of interpret that more as, you know, that's how they're trying to think of, you know, to justify the you know, emotions that they're going through right now and to try to get, uh, you know, through it and process it. But at the same time, you know, it seems to make more sense that uh, reality is more like, you know, spinning that little wheel of fortune. Because, you know, you might be a good person, but doesn't mean you're mean to bad people doing bad things. And in fact, even morals and ethics are, there's, how it applies in that whole entire thing is that um, good and evil are not things that happen to you. It's more how you respond to this tragedy or this triumphant event that happens in your, uh, your life. Like, you know, whether or not you are thankful for it it's happening or how prudent you are, if you're just and virtuous and you're able to benevolently give to the poor or you know, whatever you want, I think that's more like how we define character within these things, not, uh, you know, oh my God, he must have been a terrible person since he got this uh, bad result. Yeah, that, that that's definitely, I think that's just kind of the human in us. We want to we wanna judge. It's really hard for us to, to reserve judgment. And I think that's where, that's where Western philosophy 
is, is different from Eastern philosophy. Well, Dale, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I'm going to definitely, we'll, we'll, we'll do this again sometime and we'll go back and forth on a topic. I think, uh, I think there's a, a lot more to be said, but I try to keep the, I try to keep it under an hour. I try. Today might have gone into a little over that, so I, I'm not sure how, I might split this episode into two. <laughs> but, um, but either way, I, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And uh, to my listeners out there, uh, thanks for checking out Social Jello with Angelo. Um, stay tuned after this for a few messages and some events coming up. So there it is, the whole part one and part two series with Dale. Um, I really had a great time interviewing him. Um, we, we talked about definitely he's going to come back on the show in the future. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Social Jello with Angelo. Uh, again, uh, you can check out my website, www.socialjello.com. If you ever want to be on the show, uh, you can contact me right off my website. It'll email me, and we can talk about anything you want. Um, again, everything's about psychology, MMA. I live in Japan, so it comes from, you know, of course, Japan is a, is a big part of these conversations, but it doesn't necessarily mean have to be the main focus. All right, y'all. Thanks again for listening, and I will catch you all next month. Peace.